Welcome to the Now Is Then podcast, Season 1, Episode 5, Like a Virgin, Mother and Child. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the evolution and depictions of the image of mother and child, in specific, the icon of Isis and Horus of Pharaonic Egypt. My name is Alyssa Ralston, and joining me today, we have Jasmine Bashara and Mary Abdul-Noor, focusing in on the Coptic image of mother and child. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you for this great introduction. As you were saying, my name is Jasmine, and today I will be joining you to talk about the representation of the image of mother and child, like the statue of Isis and Horus, but within the Coptic Church from 42 AD until today. Hey, my name is Mary, and I'm also going to be joining today's discussion about the different depictions of the mother and child type throughout time and in different regions to analyze how the views on this type of image have evolved. We will also be asking a special question soon, and we will provide you with hints throughout the entire episode. Will you be able to find the answer to our question before we tell it to you in the end? Listen carefully. We also have Kim Fawn with us today, who will be talking about the transition of this mother and child image in light of the Renaissance. What's up? I'm Kim. We're starting off with some background and diving into Pharaonic Egypt. Then we're going to explore the Coptic angle of this mother and child icon. Hop on over to Europe and see how it developed there, and then talk about some more modern examples. Hopefully in the end, we will see how, by itself, the icon is nothing more than a figure or an image, but one is adopted by various groups with distinct cultural, religious, and societal views, it can be depicted differently, and therefore interpreted in different ways. We hope you enjoy what we have for you. Now let's just jump into it. To trace back this mother and child image, we should introduce to you the infamous bronze statuette that is dated to around the late period of ancient Egypt and depicts the goddess Isis sitting on a low-back throne nursing a small Horus who simply sits on her lap. Yeah, actually, a little background that I found on the goddess Isis and her son Horus was that when they were both alive during the 5th dynasty, um, their names were found in the pyramid text, which stated that Isis bore her child Horus from Osiris. If you didn't already know, Osiris is the firstborn of the earth god and sky goddess, and as some family drama that we'll get into later, became the lord of the underworld and judge of the dead. Horus is actually conceived after Osiris' death and following Osiris' resurrection because he's just cool like that. Check out Now Is Then episode 4 for more details and fun. But he's not really in the picture for this podcast, so catch you later, Osiris. Alright, we'll get back to Osiris in a few minutes, but before we do so, I wanted to talk a little bit about the structural form of the statue of Isis and Horus. In this statue, and actually in most statues of Isis, she's nearly always depicted in the anthropomorphic form meaning that she's given human characteristics and attributes as opposed to being depicted as a goddess. This statue shows Isis in her most beloved pose. Yeah, specifically, <clears throat> the statue depicts Isis breastfeeding her son Horus. This was a very popular statue during Pharaonic Egypt. And, you know, it was basically found everywhere, like household altars and drawings. It was also worn by women in miniature talismans. You could really see in each type of media on which Isis and Horus are presented that Isis is sitting on a plain throne with her left hand on Horus's back for support, offering her left breast to the infant. She is actually depicted that way because of her role in Egyptian mythology as a protector. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away. Well, approximately 7,767 miles away from California. The priest of Heliopolis developed the myth of Isis. As we have mentioned before, Isis became a queen when she married the king of Egypt, Osiris. But jealous Seth, Osiris's brother, trapped Osiris in a wooden chest, covered in lead, threw in the Nile, and became king. Isis searched for the chest and found it in... 
Where did Isis find the body of Osiris? Stay tuned. She brought back Osiris' body to Egypt, but angry Seth hacked Osiris into pieces and scattered them. Isis found all the pieces, put Osiris together, and got pregnant with Horus. She hid her son and protected him until he was fully grown and could avenge his father's death and reclaim the throne. And that's why, folks, she was seen as the goddess of protection and a role model for all women. We can actually see a very clear connection to her role as a strong woman that is illustrated in her clothing. I'm actually a huge fan of her horned crown that she adopted from the goddess Hathor during the late period of Pharaonic Egypt, which was from about 712 BC to 323 BC. Not only did she get the crown from Hathor, but she also got her vulture headdress that was known to emphasize the role of goddesses as royal mothers. Meanwhile, Horus wears an amulet on his chest which was seen as a common feature for the child gods. Here's hint number one. This place was the chief harbor for the export of cedar and other valuable wood to Egypt. Eventually, it became a great trading center. To help our understanding of the stylistic developments and provide a more holistic view of the possible importance of the mother and child in ancient Egyptian iconography, we have PhD candidate Danielle Candelora to expand on this with her expertise. My name is Danielle Candelora. I'm a, I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate in the Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department, and I'm specializing in Egyptian archaeology. Specifically, my dissertation research looks at immigration in the ancient world and a group of people who immigrated from what's now Israel into northern Egypt and how they sort of adapted to life in their new home. Yeah, so I look at a lot of sort of cross-cultural issues of identity. So what is your knowledge of the statue of Isis and Horus? So the particular form of the statue is extremely popular, especially in later periods of Egyptian history. Starting especially in the late period, you get a lot of these bronze, little small bronze statues of Isis holding Horus uh, in some way um, on her lap usually. Um, but it kind of evolves out of a history of mother goddesses in Egypt. Um, and so we have even from some of the earliest periods like the pyramids, we have images of goddesses uh, suckling the king as her son and things like that. So it's a, it's, it's a constantly present uh, cultural element in Egypt that sort of gets developed over time with the addition of especially the popularity of the myth of Horus as a child specifically, as opposed to an adult male king, <laughs> uh, becomes more popular. And then you, get, you see these statues becoming extremely popular as donations to temples specifically. Awesome. So, what influence did foreign interaction have on the portrayal of Isis and Horus like, in the later periods of ancient Egypt? Good question as well. So, starting, I would say, in the Second Intermediate Period, which is the period I study, there's a lot of influence, especially from the Near East, coming into Egypt, and this comes along with a, a lot of religious aspects. So, gods from all over the place wind up in Egypt, and they get what's called syncretized, so it's essentially um, smushed, <laughs> technical term, uh, together with Egyptian gods. So they kind of basically go like, oh, you have a god of storms and chaos, so do we. It's obviously the same person, so same okay. god, that kind right. of thing. Okay. So you get that happening a lot with female gods in particular as well, because of course, you know, it's pretty universal in the ancient world that somebody's going to have a goddess of motherhood and, and birth and all that, all that stuff. So I think it, it gets more 
woven in to the idea of Isis and Horus than having a an obvious effect. I think the obvious effect comes when it gets exported from Egypt right. in, in later periods. So were there any different techniques introduced in like the art styles and the cultural influences that we can like see uh, evolve throughout time in the later periods like yeah. uh, Egypt, yeah. So even um even this the way that they produce these metal um, statues that you guys are looking at is originally potentially a foreign technology. Um, so the, the metal working in general is, is coming from outside of Egypt um, in much earlier periods, uh, but they also bring in uh, associated casting techniques. So how they actually you know melt the metal and pour them into molds and things to make this type of object is, is foreign. Right, awesome. Um, so what identities did the ancient Egyptians like derive and associate from the Isis and Horus icon? Sure. Uh, in this one, you can talk about uh, several different sort of levels of society and their identities. So I already mentioned the king. Um, he specifically gets associated with baby Horus. Uh, so he's like the living embodiment of Horus on Earth. And so the identity that he derives is, is basically demonstrating that he is a god and he's being suckled by his goddess mother and things like that. In general, Isis was the mother goddess, right? So like any anyone who wanted kids or whose kid was sick or anything like that was uh, very invested in the in the Isis and Horus icon, which is why it's so popular as a as a temple um, dedication. That's so cool. Thank you. Um, when the statue and the icon was like exported out of Europe, uh excuse me, Egypt, <laughs> into Europe, or like other Near Eastern countries, um, what identities transferred? Like, were the identities the same, like, did, or did it evolve to in the culture itself? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends where it goes. In places where the concept of a divine king is already present, um, it kind of keeps that essence where Horus is identified with the, with the child king. But in, in places like Greece, for example, where that's not necessarily um, something that's in their cultural tradition, it, they go more in the, in the motherhood uh, aspect. So it's, it's very adoptable, adaptable <laughs> in both ways, like in both ways. Um, and even when, the, when the, the Ptolemaic dynasty starts in Egypt, so these are Greco-Macedonian people who come after Alexander the Great. They adopt their cuckoo for Isis. Um, and Cleopatra of fame um, actually paraded herself around Alexandria dressed as Isis and stuff like this. So she's like really heavily responsible for the popularity of the Isis cult, especially abroad in Rome, because people sort of get this mixed up with um, just in the same way that we have a little bit of Egyptomania today. Right. Uh, the Romans had this as well. Um, so everything Egypt was cool uh, in Rome. <laughs> And so the Isis cult became very popular in places like Rome for that reason as well. Um, that's it for me. Questions? I have no more questions. Do you have any closing remarks? No. Great. Great project. Awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. So as time continues from the late period, both figures, Isis and Horus, come to embody separate things. Isis was said to be a physical manifestation of divine motherhood with her life-nurturing capabilities while Horus became closely associated with the pharaoh who believed himself to be a divine heir. So it makes sense that the pharaoh would come to physically embody the young figure Horus, and together 
These two figures made the statue an iconic religious piece throughout ancient Egyptian households of the late dynastic period. Yeah, exactly. And in addition to that, I remember reading an article on the statue of Isan Horus on the Metropolitan Museum of Art website. It mentioned that these types of statuettes were usually dedicated not just to the Isis cults, but seemingly to many temples and shrines that were built for people to worship Osiris and his child god Horus. Although many cultures that followed the pharaonic era set the statue of Isis and Horus as their model and depicted it in very unique and cool ways, after digging up in the older pharaonic kingdoms, we found an even older statue portraying the same theme of mother and child from the old kingdom. So that would mean that this statue was prior to the time of the Isis and Horus statuette from the late dynastic period. Well, yeah, and to be specific, the statue actually belonged to King Pepi II and his mother queen, Anchis and Pepi I. <laughs> Sounds like a mouthful. I know. Mary, do you know anything about King Pepi II's reign? Well, it seems that he reigned for 90 years, so he must have been ancient. But that's also because he became king at age 6, so... Oh my god, wow, I didn't know he was that young. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I think he's actually significantly smaller than his mother in the statue. And that's probably because the sculptor wanted to highlight the fact that he reigned at such a young age. We also see the theme of motherly support making a second appearance here, where Pepe's right hand is firmly closed while his left hand rests on his mother's hand as her left hand supports his back. Wait, hold up. Is that a hole in the queen's forehead? Excuse me? Um, oh yeah, about that. Egyptologists actually think that this hole indicates that an object of another material, material was inserted in the statue. Enchins the first head is covered by the vulture headdress, which we have seen before in statuettes of the goddess and queens who are mothers, like in the statue of Isan Horus. Therefore, it's probably safe to assume that this missing object could have been the head of the vulture. Wow. I wonder what the object was made out of, if it was taken so easily. Oh my god, do you think it was like out of some type of rare jewelry that got stolen? Whoa, okay, okay, before we get too busy looking into the scandal, let's look into more icons that made an appearance after the pharaonic era. Ancient Egyptian religion and Christianity are very closely related. There's a holy trinity, which in Christianity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in ancient Egyptian religion, it was Ptah, Sakaris, and Osiris in the Old Kingdom, and a moon Ray and Ptah in the New Kingdom. Osiris, Isis, and Horus can be considered a trinity as well. The similarities don't stop there. All living things in nature have a place in the universe. The soul is immortal, and an eternal afterlife that is determined by one's behavior on Earth is shared by both religions. The Coptic era of Egypt was also called the Christian era of Egypt. It started from around the Roman Egyptian or Byzantine Egyptian era, or basically the third century. It lasted approximately to the 9th century when the majority of the Egyptian population was Christian. This change was due to Emperor Constantine who declared Christianity a legal religion of Egypt in 313 CE. Nowadays, we refer to Christian Egyptians as Copts. Despite the Muslim conquest of Egypt in the 7th century and the conversion of many Copts to Islam, Coptic Christianity was still very relevant. In fact, to this day, there are Copts living in Egypt. They have preserved their roots and their culture within the religious context of their churches. They preserved the Coptic language, which was the ancient Egyptian language with Greek alphabet and a couple of demotic signs. It is still read by the clergy of the Coptic church today. They also preserved Coptic art, which can be seen in icons all over the church. So how did this image of the mother and child differ as it was adopted in Coptic Christianity? 
did the image become completely different in meaning? How does the style of the art impact its audience through this Coptic lens? Um, okay, well, unlike the Egyptian art style that focuses on showing every part of a person's body, Coptic iconography doesn't aim to paint features of the person's body, but its soul. However, both art styles are similar in the sense that there is this absence of naturalism and emotion because their pictures and icons don't represent the world of flesh. Instead of focusing on bodily accents like Renaissance art, sensory body parts such as, you know, the nose and ears take a backseat in Coptic art. As we will see in later depictions of the Madonna Lactans or the European depictions of the Virgin during the Renaissance, the breast is emphasized and even barren like in the Egyptian portrayal of Isis. The Coptic style just conceals all nudity and focuses more on the divinity of the Virgin rather than her maternity. Hmm, interesting. You know what? I think the main reason the Coptic style ensures that the icons are deprived of nudity is because they are mainly found in churches in Egypt and around many Christian communities in the Middle East, and they don't normally like to show nudity in their art. This is a perfect example of where we see how much the culture and location of the image can influence the artistic style. I think some might say that the adoption of this Isis and Horus image to Mary and Jesus can be seen as a power play. In a short interview with Egyptologist and PhD student Nicholas Brown, he stated that this change in iconography suggests a colonial idea of power dynamics with the culture that adopts this image. Similarly, throughout the quarter, we've been talking about this idea of Orientalism, which I believe to be the case here. Orientalism is defined as the West's patronizing representations of the Eastern countries settled in the areas of Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East. Applying this concept of Orientalism to Egyptian art, Nicholas Brown noticed that the cultures or religions that have adopted, altered, appropriated the icon, or whatever you want to call it, have turned an essentially pagan image into an image that fits the agenda of their religion. But can you expand more on the different aspects that's focused in on for Coptic art? Well, you know, the image of uh, mother and child was brought from Egypt to the West and Byzantium through early Christian art. And with time, the figures of both the Virgin and the child began to have a cold solemnity and an emphasized asceticism. Asceticism is just a complicated word for describing a way of life where a person practices abstinence from any central pleasures to attain a spiritual goal. Um, and yeah, these aspects manifested themselves in detail, such as the reduction of the breast to the utmost degree possible. Here's hint number two. The Phoenician alphabet was developed there. So, after doing some research, many images of St. Mary and Jesus can be found today in Masri Adima, or Old Cairo, which is the region located on the East Valley of the Nile, across from Giza, where the pyramids are found. I was reading a book on Coptic iconography called Coptic Icons Volume 2 by Nabil Atallah that had images of mother and child icons from Coptic churches, and I found that El Damshireya Church in Old Cairo is the most diverse Coptic church in Egypt, due to its inclusion of images of St. Mary and Jesus that represent different influences. For example, okay, the church contains images that represent the Nubian style, where the mother and child are given darker features and the background behind them is decorated with authentic Nubian patterns. Nubian patterns, for those of you who don't know, um, include colorful geometric figures, mainly triangles and straight lines, represent, uh, presented, I mean, in a very simple way. Another image found in the church represents the Persian style, with a very simple and plain background. And the other image represents the Egyptian style with a excessive use of gold for the clothing of both the mother and child, in comparison to the Persian picture um, with its very simple and slight angle um, portrayal of Jesus. 
Placing all those multi-forms of the images of mother and child in one church suggests that the Shariya church's main message behind these images is that regardless of where the image comes from or the ethnicity of its artist, they all serve the same purpose of honoring St. Mary and Jesus. Each image on its own is simply a figure or an image that reflects the same idea by a different culture. But when this idea is adopted by various groups with different cultural, religious, or social views, it can be depicted differently to reflect the values that the culture holds. And thus, it sends a subtle message to the viewer that enables him or her to figure out the origin of the image, and maybe even be able to relate it back to its ancient Egyptian multiform. Yeah, um, just like how the ver- the image of you know the Virgin and Jesus is a multiform form of the statue of Isis and Horus, uh, many other cultures have developed the image of the Virgin and Jesus and created their own multiforms of it as well. And the basis of the image, a mother and her child, is just, you know, plain iconography type that with cultural, social, and religious influences can be depicted differently with different highlighted aspects, such as maternity, virginity, familiarity, etc. Despite all of this, these aspects are all present in each different depiction of the image. To help us add on to the Coptic depiction of mother and child, we brought a special guest. Graciously joining us today is Father Isaac. Mary and Jasmine, take it away. Yes, my name is Father Isaac Andrews. Mm-hmm. I am a priest in St. Peter and St. Paul, Coptic Orthodox Church and located in Santa Monica mm-hmm. in the Diocese of Los Angeles. Uh, I was ordained in year 2004. Could you just describe like the colors, the facial expressions of the icons of like Mary and Jesus? And- I see. Okay, I'm not an expert in Coptic iconography, mm-hmm. but I can answer from my kind of general knowledge at, yeah. as a priest. Uh, Coptic iconography is part of the Coptic art. So in, in our church, there is three main branches of the Coptic art. Mm-hmm. There is hymnology, the way we sing. And that's in itself a source of doctrine and a teaching because we include in the process of uh, singing all the faith and the dogma and the belief system we have. The other part is um, architecture, the way we build the churches, how they reflect uh, our faith. Like, for instance, in co- typical Coptic church, you have three doors, one in the west, one in the north, and one in the south. And they represent the Holy Trinity and how we enter from each door so there are three areas of Coptic art, which is hymnology, and then the second one is architecture, and then the last one is iconography. Mm-hmm. So in, in Coptic icons, the, the whole idea is not the, the painting. The idea is more of doctrine, teaching. That's why, if you notice, the painting is not like, a, it's not like live painting. It's not like when you paint a portrait of someone. They're not really codes, but they're kind of common standards of for instance when you draw the picture of the virgin mary and the lord jesus we usually put the virgin mary on the right hand of the lord jesus you will never find any coptic icon the virgin mary on the left hand because in the psalm 45 it says the queen sits at the right hand of the king also uh, in coptic iconography it's always 2d there's no three there's no third dimensions only two dimensions in coptic iconography the sky is colored in gold, not in blue. There are also color codes, for instance, the green in the Coptic iconography represents evil. That's why if you, you look at any icon with Judas or, you know, they put in, they put them in green. 
not not in uh, like the saints and the Lord Jesus. We usually use uh, blue and white and red for in the Coptic for the saints. But green has a kind of a bad uh, feel in the Coptic icon. Also in the Coptic icon, we don't draw the we, when we draw someone or we write, we put face to face for the holy men. Evil is done uh, uh, like a, but yeah, no, like a, uh, it's called what is it called? The profile. Profile, yeah, not not face to face. So you don't see the two eyes of someone that like mm -hmm. any, uh, you know, like Judas or anything. Mm -hmm. For the icon of the Virgin Mary, you notice there is stars in her clothes, three stars usually, mm -hmm. to represent her ever virginity. She's virgin before conceiving Christ. And while she, when she gave birth to Christ and after, she will continue to be a virgin. And our church will believe in the ever virginity of St. Mary, and we portray that in the icon. And the Coptic icon also, when you look at the face, you don't find all the parts of the face in equal size. The eyes, for instance, usually the eyes and the mouth are, usually the eyes are a little smaller than the mouth, you know. But in Coptic icon, it's the opposite. The eyes are bigger than the mouth. And you know why that is? Because it represents wisdom. The eyes means those holy men and women of God have spiritual insight. The eye represents insight. And the mouth being small represents wisdom and not being t talkative. How do you think like the congregation views um, the icon of Mary and Jesus or how they use it in prayers? Icons are used as part of prayer. So we look up the icon and then this is a natural spiritual feel. It's not like something written in books of dogma. When they look at the picture, at the icon of the Virgin Mary, they start talking to her naturally as someone talking to their mother. So we do not worship the icon and we do not believe that the icon is like an idol or anything like that. Absolutely, because sometimes we're accused of that because we give incense to the icon and we venerate the icon and we kiss the icon. No, the whole idea is we feel the presence of the saint through the icon. But the presence itself is a spiritual presence with us. Does that make sense to yeah. you? So the icon itself, yes, we consecrate the icon with my rune and everything mm -hmm. to be blessed. But it's not as we sometimes are, you know, thought of as we worship the icon or we worship, you know. No, the icon represents the presence of the saints with us. That's why they face us. When you walk into the church, you face the east, but the icons in the iconostasis face the west. Why they face the west? To make you feel they are with you. So we, we talk to the Virgin Mary, we say, we love you, pray for us, in a very natural flow, actually. We also light candles before the icons. Right, well, thank you so much for meeting with us. That was very insightful. We learned a lot about Coptic art, and yeah, thank you for having us here. Sure, absolutely. There is a defined link between Isis and the Virgin Mary, and that it has been said that the image of Isis nursing Horus is a prototype of the image of the Virgin Mary and child. The significance in this lies in the fact that this icon is one of the most reoccurring subjects of Egyptian art. Further analysis on the differences between these images as we closely look at the placement of the child, from Horus between Isis's legs to Jesus being held in the arms of the Virgin Mary, and almost all Catholic and Christian depictions of mother and child. Clearly, this shift in the child's placement is representative 
of the child's transformation from being merely a youth to reverting back to an innocent baby in the eyes of Catholicism and Christianity. By the advent of Renaissance art and in light of Catholicism and Christianity, this was the most widely accepted representation of a child in their eyes. Yeah, like I said before, the iconography of, you know, the Virgin Mary during the Byzantine Empire emphasized her virginity and holiness rather than her motherhood. And, you know, the different variations in the way the mother or the virgin is presented with her relationship to the child taken into account differs throughout different cultures. I think it's actually really cool that the artist chose to focus on one specific element for St. Mary during the Byzantine era. Uh, For me, personally, most of the images I was looking at focused on highlighting Jesus as the center of the image. Some of those images I saw at the Getty Center in Los Angeles last week when I visited, and they were super cool. One common element that I realized across a couple of European images of mother and child was that they often portray the donors of the icon, who, like, to summarize in common terms, um, sponsor the artist to draw the image, and in return, the artist incorporates them into the picture, which I thought was a really cool way of advertising for the royalties during the time. The picture that stood out to me the most was the image of the Madonna and child with two donors by Lorenzo Lotto, where the donors are in profile with you kneeling alongside the Virgin and Jesus with Jesus being the closest to the center of the image, like in most European icons, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, there definitely have been transitions, you know. For example, the European Madonna was progressively depicted as more human, and the maternal affection became the main characteristic of her representation with Christ. But eventually, as the Roman Catholic Church came in conflict with the Eastern Orthodox Church, Renaissance artists in Northern Europe were exposed to Byzantine pictorial art. Some images depicted the Virgin detachedly holding baby Jesus, who often seems to be a small boy rather than a helpless baby. These images function to underline her virginity over her maternity and, to some extent, undervalue the role that she played in Jesus' life. Whereas, you know, the Madonna is depicted with one breast exposed, breastfeeding baby Jesus, and emphasizing her maternal function. As we have seen through the Coptic lens, the image of Isis and Horus developed to fit a more maternal appearance along with her holiness, making the overarching motivation behind the change as a yearn for new artistic style and devoutness in religion. So let's see how this icon develops during the wake of the Renaissance and Bronze Age. Could there be a clear motive behind the various representations? The Renaissance was a time of academic, artistic, and cultural rebirth covering a period from the Middle Ages, about 14th century, to modernity, about 18th century. Centered in mostly Europe, the Renaissance influence stretched to the West and East European countries. One of the most prominent areas of the Renaissance were its grandiose art pieces, including the Madonna and Child. Some of you may wonder, what is the difference between the Virgin Mary and Madonna? There is none. They're one and the same. Madonna is just a medieval Italian translation of My Lady. Mm-hmm. With the uh, Madonna, there definitely have been multiforms throughout different regions in Europe in different times. Uh, the focus of each icon is different because the purpose behind it varied and different aspects of it were emphasized. Early icons were revered and believed to have been capable of performing miracles, and, you know, later depictions of Mary served as just, you know, a, a reminder of biblical events. Exactly. And it's precisely in this light that we focus heavily on the minor details of the various renditions of the Madonna and Child and how their development came due to the respective cultures and societies it was adapted into. In the early years of the Renaissance and Bronze Age, specifically the early to mid-15th century, the various images of the Virgin Mary and Child are almost always recognizable and connected to each other iconographically. 
I think we can agree that if someone were to show us a picture or some sort of representation of the Virgin Mary or Golden Madonna holding a child, most people would immediately know who was in the image and its context. Similarly, as stated by PhD student Nicholas Brown, ancient Egyptian art was created for an illiterate audience to understand. With the Isis and Horus statuette, ancient Egyptians would have recognized these icons almost immediately. So it's the same with the Virgin and Mary and Jesus icon. Of course, there are small differences in the representations of the Virgin Mary and child, whether it be their stances, the gaze of their faces, or their hand gestures. Whatever it may be, these differences can be attributed to regional differences. In Italy, the famous Michelangelo depicted the well-known biblical event of Mary carrying the body of Jesus after his crucifixion, death, and removal from the cross, but before he was placed in the tomb. The statue is called La Pieta. This was actually one of the biggest key events in the Virgin's life, and it later became known as one of the seven sorrows of Mary, which later became a Catholic devotional prayer. So it's probably safe to assume that this intended audience for this statue was the Catholic European Church. Here is hint number three. It is one of the oldest continuously inhabited towns in the world. Another thing that was special about La Pieta is its structure, in that it's considered a multi-figured statue, which was considered very rare during the Renaissance era. Although it was common for the mother and child statue to be multi-figured, but to be specific, this statue of mother and child is considered to be one of the very first multi-figured statues during the era and was greatly admired by other Renaissance artists such as Leonardo. Was there something kind of weird about the ratios of La Pieta? That's actually a question that puzzled a lot of artists when the statue was first released. And I believe the best explanation to it was that Michelangelo chose to depict Mary much larger than Jesus in order to show the great support she provided him during his journey to the cross. When we compare this with the mother and child statues from the Pharaonic era, we see that the mother is also oft often depicted bigger than the child except her child is often a baby in those statues. But the different ratios still convey the same message to the audience of the mother providing support to her son. Spanish-Italian artist Giuseppe de Rivera's Madonna with Child and Saint Bruno focuses on Mary's holiness. There was a lot of debate up until the 14th century over whether Mary's own birth was free of all sin and immaculate or not. Saint Bruno wrote about the Immaculate Conception and that was why in the 17th century, Ribera chose to include St. Bruno alongside the Immaculate Conception portrayal of Madonna and Child. This solidified the church's intention during Catholic Reformation and the iconography associated with the Immaculate Conception. This image could be taken as an example of how the mother and child icon has been repurposed and utilized to push different agendas, in this case, the Catholic churches. Furthermore, we can follow the evolution of the relationship between Mary and child and the audience with the Madonna of Humility, which first appeared mid-1300s in early Italian paintings and persisted for the next century. Catholicism was moving away from the impersonal cult figure and focusing more on the layman. In order to be more humanized, Jacopo de Tioni shifted Mary from an elevated position to one that was closer to the ground. The child reaches for her breast, but also glances outward to draw the audience in. He is wearing a protection amulet made of curl, just like all the other Italian kids at the time. Horace was also known to wear an amulet as well. Coincidence? I think not! <laughs> Some artists like Carlo de Camarino chose to keep the regal Queen of Heaven, Woman of the Apocalypse Mary from the Middle Ages, but she was still sitting down very much like a peasant would, accentuating her duality. 
This duality reminds me of Cleopatra's reign, when she portrayed herself as Isis breastfeeding to assert her power, especially when she was in a relationship with Mark Antony. Nonetheless, this Madonna of humility came to be the symbol of maternal tenderness in that time. Later though, as seen in Pietro Perugini's and Albrecht Durer's renditions, the Madonna is still seated, but the meaning of her being close to the earth has changed. She was now associated with the fertile earth in less than 100 years of Dicioni's piece. Art is incredibly subjective and individualistic, so it really can be what you make of it. In this context, the Catholic Church was pushing to be more hashtag relatable to maintain a strong following. <laughs> oh my god, wow. I did not know all those paintings were all related together. That's super cool, Kim. Aw, thank you. <laughs> Here's hint number four. The ruins today consisted of the Crusader fortifications and a gate, a Roman colonnade and small theater, Phoenician ramparts, three major temples, and an acropolis, and remains of Neolithic dwellings. This place was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1984. Going back to comparing the levels of nudity portrayed in each image, Mary, do you know what the Renaissance artists were trying to depict when um, portraying the Madonna with a certain level of nudity? Oh uh, yeah, between the Eastern and Western cultures, the depictions of Mary uh, contain drastic differences. Uh, arguments about her nudity rose, as some claim that it highlights the Virgin's similarities to other women, and that nudity in religious artwork has potential in evoking subconscious erotic associations. The nudity was justified through this lens of naturalism, which focused more on the, you know, the style of art. Since it followed an artistic movement, it lost some of its religious value as a result. Another reason for her nudity actually was due to the fact that the aim of the Renaissance painters was to depict a virtuous lady and a wet nurse with the aspects of her divinity being overlooked. The concept of the wet nurse was the focus of, you know, social hierarchy. Um, in older times, there was a hierarchy within the ranks of the belly or the wet nurses, depending on who they worked for. The Virgin's Gomorrah, or robe, was fashioned differently to resemble those found on the Bailey's gowns to, to facilitate nursing with the minimum amount of undress. With such a focus on traditional and social practices, you know, the image of the lactating virgin lost a lot of its religious implications, actually. This aversion to nursing wasn't exclusive to Europe. The Talsepta, which is Jewish oral law in the 2nd century Roman Palestine, dictated that if anyone found a ring with an image of a breastfeeding mother, it was to be thrown in the Dead Sea. Well, that doesn't help us if all the evidence is at the bottom of the sea. I wonder where we can find other images that we haven't talked about yet. Luckily, we have the UCLA Special Collections right here as a valuable database to uncover some more pictures. Hashtag not spawn, but wish it was. <laughs> Here we have a picture from 1904 of an Egyptian mother from John Muir's Egyptian Views brought home, which was a photographic collection of daily activities in Egypt. In this photo, the mother is slightly angled off to her left and is seated with her baby sleeping on her lap facing her. She wears a beautiful yet simple abaya, which is a long tunic dress, a long shawl covering her head and is adorned with gold dangling earrings and two pearl necklaces. On her wrist, she wears simple wrap bracelets. Her hands are strong, firm, and protective, yet still delicate and gentle when cradling her baby. Hmm, the way the woman is dressed reminds me of um, how people in the Upper Egypt area dress nowadays. In the region, Egyptians refer to as Said Egypt, 
Her outfit or her Saidi Abaya is very popular among older women and farmers' wives. Um, they mainly wear them when they go to, from the villages to the city or the market. Y'all, the fact that Mir thought to photograph a woman just sitting there with her child in her arms to encapsulate the entirety of Egyptian views shows how important the mother and child type is to the Western photographer and to the Egyptian culture. I completely agree. The specific mother and child image we see here has significance that's beyond the limits of a single culture. This image speaks volumes about the human experience. Here, the mother has a duality in her posture. She delicately holds her child, as is inherent of all mothers, but there's a certain power in her stance and gaze that brings an aspect of divinity to her role. She protects and nurtures. She's strong yet gentle. She's dauntless and humble. This is the essence of the mother and child that has allowed the continuance of the image through the times. Wow, you guys, that was such a cool example. Following along with our timeline, the most recent and impactful photographs I found that portray a mother with her child were actually taken in the 20th century during the Great Depression. One of those photographs was taken by Dorothea Lange in 1936 after she, take, she was taken the job of Resettlement Administration, which was a New Deal agency placed to help impoverished families relocate. According to Lange, the woman that she took the picture of was surrounded by seven children inside the tent. She focused the image on the mother and only three of her children. Was there a specific reason why the picture didn't include everyone? I'm not sure, but I think Dorothea Lang was mainly trying to portray the struggles the mother was going through. And in the moment, she was just surrounded by only three children that Dorothea included, chose to include in the picture. In fact, I think the conditions were very harsh for families who had a lot of children during the time because they were basically living in the streets for a while. The woman in the picture, Florence Thompson, was only 32 years old, but the image portrays her as much older than that. And that might be due to the fact that the image displayed in black and white. Unlike the previous images that we have been looking at, the woman and her children are not glorified or highlighted in, as powerful people in any way. In fact, the woman looks very distressed and two of her children are looking away from the camera and leaning their heads on her, while her other child is asleep in her arms. Similar to previous images, however, the position of the mother in the center of this image does indicate that she is their main source of support, regardless of the fact that she is distressed and worried about their current situation. You could say this picture has a commonality with the figures of Isis and the Madonna, in that these three are representations of a mother in her most intimate form. She's purposely placed in a way in which she's tending to her child, or children in this case, emphasizing her role as nurturer and protector of life. This and similar images evoke an intense emotional appeal from its audience by the use of both divine and human features. Yeah, I think that's exactly what Dorothea was trying to portray. This photograph later became known as the Migrant Mother, but unfortunately it's not available to display as of today. But I believe it travels around museums in the United States for our shows. The final example is one I see every day, courtesy of my roommate, Sophia McConnell. Oh, um, hi. Uh, my name is Sophia. I'm an art major at UCLA. Yes. <laughs> Love it. So, when did you first come across this icon? I guess because I, I didn't grow up with any kind of organized religion in my household, like the mother and child image was really introduced to me through um, a family friend who's an artist and she takes like historically significant like figures or scenes and recreates them in these paintings that she does and drawings that are a little bit um, like morbid or like strange and dark 
so a lot of like my first introductions as a child to a lot of like historically significant um, symbols and like visuals were through her art. This one specific of like the technically the mother and child was on the door of my mom's bedroom when I was a young kid. So and I would like always see it there. It was like a black ink drawing. Nice. This icon obviously means a lot to you. You have it tattooed on your arm. It's beautiful. So what does it mean to you? Well, I guess it has like significance just as being kind of like consistent in my life as that image on the wall and like being in my mom's bedroom. But uh, after growing up, uh, it kind of like the significance changed uh, because of my experiences and uh, my identity. And to me, it's more of like kind of like parent or like caretaker or like mentor um and then like child and the tattoo itself is like of that ink drawing but it's like very specifically like like freaky parent and then like baby (laughs) yes but uh i want to i want to foster kids and i want to work in like outreach and like uh i kind of want to get a master's in social work so i kind of see myself in it um yeah that's beautiful Thank you for taking time with us today, Sophia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Overall, with its origin placed in the times of Pharaonic Egypt, the mother and child image alone stands as a simple illustration, but when it becomes adopted into societies with defined religious and cultural beliefs, the meaning of the iconography thus transforms into the biases of the viewer. Beauty, or should I say meaning, is in the eye of the beholder. The mother and child icon has been used across time from Pharaonic Egypt to modern times to declare powerful messages. The icon has been used to establish the power of one's kingship and to elicit raw emotions to push the audience to feel a certain way, whether it be about organized religion or pushing the rejection of the nudity of nursing. Exactly, and although the time periods between the images we discussed were very long, we still saw the common elements of mother providing care and support for her children which serves to greatly highlight the mother in those images. Thank you for staying tuned this entire episode. Earlier, we asked you all a question. Where did Isis find the body of Osiris? Well, do you have your answer? I know we do. Drum roll, please. (laughs) Isis found the body of Osiris in Byblos. Yay! Byblos is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 20 miles north of modern-day Beirut, Lebanon. Would definitely love to visit there someday. Thank you all for tuning in today. A very special thank you to Courtney Jacobs for helping us with UCLA Special Collections, Simon Lee for teaching us how to navigate UCLA's libraries, Deidre Whitmore for tech help, and Tom from Home Tech Garbalotti, Danny Candelora and Nicholas Brown, Sophie McConnell and Father Isaac for talking with us. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Don't go looking for us because we won't be here. Unless, of course, you want to hit that repeat button, then you are welcome back anytime. Check out all the other awesome episodes, too. Peace out, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. That's all, folks. See you on the flip side. Hello, well, remember that time we started recording without actually pressing the record button? <laughs> 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 <laughs>